You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 37. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. But isn't that like cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast, dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Hey there, guys. So this is part two of our Q&A since we didn't get to finish all the questions that we had come in. So we're going to start going into some of those. But uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about our experience at uh, the uh, Pride Festival that we went to. In Harrisburg? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was cool. So we went to Pride in Harrisburg here recently, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it was it was an interesting experience. We went with some friends and somebody we're seeing. It was different because it was a lot smaller than a lot of the other Prides that I've been at. And they had relocated it too because in case you're not from this area, it's been monsooning here lately. <laughs> Horribly. Horribly, if you're not from the DMV area. That's another story. So they relocated it, because apparently normally in Harrisburg, it's near the water, and they'd moved it to like downtown near the Capitol, which I actually thought was really cool. Yeah, it was super pretty. We got to see the awesome water fountain that you got into. You got to go run around in the water fountain a little bit, and I got to get new flags, because my BDSM flag got destroyed last year in the storm and uh, got wrapped up in the bush and all that. So I was super happy to finally get a new BDSM flag and a poly flag. So I'm pretty happy about that. You've been trying to get a poly flag for a long time. Forever. Nobody carries poly flags. There's all kinds of flags. I still think they've got to be available online somewhere. I have not been able to find anybody that sells them I finally got my poly flag, so I'm super happy. I'm happy you're happy. I am joyful. Now we just need flagpoles. We need one flagpole. That one out there is fine. Harrisburg Pride was pretty cool. It was a lot of, uh, like I said, it was smaller. They, they had like two rows of vendors, but I mean, everybody was having a really good time. Music was good. It was interesting because it's the first time that I've been to a Pride that I've ever seen a protest. And I don't know if that was because... It's the first pride that I've been to that's had a protest or if it was just because it was a smaller pride. So the protest was actually visible because a lot of the prides that we've got to like Baltimore, for example, chances are unless you were in the exact right spot, you wouldn't run into the protest because it's it's sizable. I mean, I know Baltimore is the biggest pride, but it's sizable. It's huge. It was it was really interesting, actually. So Amanda and somebody else there were getting drinks and I saw this person in a safety vest with this like giant rainbow umbrella and they had on their their vest that said silent witness i think at first i was thinking like okay maybe this is a legal observer because i know sometimes uh, you know more for protest type things but i know that people will send lawyers out to observe like law enforcement to make sure everything goes well and had the whole silent witness thing in the safety vest so initially i was thinking that's what it was but then i realized that there was this one lonely protester behind her and she was blocking him from from like the view of pride with this giant rainbow umbrella. So we actually talked to the people 
there was a couple of them and I actually went and chatted with one of them a bit and realized that this is, this is actually what they do is, you know, they're this group that goes out and when people are protesting pride events and I don't, I don't know quite what else they do, but that they'll go out and they will try and obstruct the view of these people. Clearly you can't actually touch them, like obstruct the view of the protesters from pride with their giant rainbow umbrellas that people can enjoy pride without the bigots. So I actually thought that was, a really, really cool thing. And I think I will actually, because I think it's an amazing thing that they're doing, I'll find a link to their site and I will post it in the show notes at a touchofflavor.com forward slash zero three seven. And I will post that there because I think what they're doing is really cool. And I, you know, if you want more information on what they're doing, I think you should have it. But it was, it was really interesting. The, the whole protest thing was kind of interesting. Yeah. And I thought it was an amazing idea because it's like you're blocking out the bigots with beautiful multicolored rainbow umbrellas. And I just thought that was super amazing and cool. And as far as seeing the protesters, it was kind of interesting because it was such a small group. And it was like five people, maybe. Yeah. And talking to other folks who have gone to the Harrisburg Pride each year at Pride, there's less of them. So maybe this is a good sign. Maybe it's a good sign that we're getting less jerks at our events, at the events where we're trying to celebrate our authentic selves. There's less of these kind of people. And I think it's awesome that there are the people who have bright colored umbrellas to step in when they do show up. And block people off so you don't have to see them and hear them and deal with them. It was kind of interesting to see like, like all the little things that like go into it that you don't think of, like, you know, so they had their giant rainbow umbrellas. So then the protesters had to get super tall signs so that the signs could stick up over the umbrellas. You're just like, and this is like, this is like a lot of thinking that must go into this back and forth. The thing for me about it, well, first off, I kind of got to wonder how many people just made out in front of them all day because that <laughs> had to happen. There had to be other assholes like you. I support your assholeism in this case. I was not an asshole. I passionately kissed my girlfriend as a demonstration of my freedom to love my partner in front of jerks. So that was, yeah, so there was that. But it was interesting for me because, like, I understand, I completely understand, like, people who find these protesters really distressing, right? Especially, you know, for whatever reason, like, they're trying to take pictures of you or like maybe you're coming from like your your spiritual and hearing what they have to say about like you know you going to hell and things like that is disturbing to you or, or any of the other reasons. I mean, so I understand where it can be very disturbing. Me personally though, I just found myself I'm like these people have nothing better to do on a Saturday. I find this almost amusing. Like if it wasn't affecting other people like so badly, like I would find this amusing because like you have these people who have nothing else to do on a Saturday but stand out here in the sun waving their sides. And we're having a good time on this Saturday. And this is what they're doing, is standing here in the sun with these signs, with people with rainbow umbrellas standing in front of them, not accomplishing fuck all. I don't know. doesn't seem like a great way to spend a Saturday to me. Not at all. And the funny thing is, is that the people that they are being this way to even if they were trying to get their point across, they're not making it. So it really is just a full waste of time. But hey, you know, people do their thing. 
So I think the moral of the story is... Their thing is, is being bigots. Yes, their thing is being bigots. And I think the moral of the story is that it's amazing how much of the bullshit rain you can get rid of by just having a rainbow umbrella. All right. So our first question for today is from Aaron, 23, from New York. I have been talking to someone online for two years, and we have a great online power exchange relationship. We are friends on Facebook and talk on the phone and on FaceTime regularly. He has asked me many times to relocate and live with him. However, we've never met. I'm ending school soon. I will be able to get a job just about anywhere, and I'm at a point where it would be okay for a move. Is this a good idea? How can I go about this the best way while making the choice before December? Also, I don't want to mess up the dynamic, power dynamic, while I am making my decision. So it was actually September, not December. So that's not too far away. This is one of those questions you feel a little torn on, right? Yes. Like, I feel like the answer I'd give most of the time is not necessarily the answer I'd give in this case. Here's my thoughts on this. A lot of times if someone said to me, I've never met someone in person and I'm going to move in with them or I'm thinking about moving into it with them, I would get the shock face, you know, the little O face on Facebook that's like, oh, that face would be the face that I would have. And I would say, I don't particularly think it's a good idea to move in with someone that you have never met before. But that's going with the idea that you haven't had a lot of interaction. And this could be very different depending on your two-year relationship that you've had with this person. Well, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where typically... If I heard somebody say, hey, I've got this master I've only met online who wants me to move across the country, move in with them, I'd be like, fuck no. But the details matter, right? And, you know, in this case, uh, detail one is you have been talking to them for two years and yeah, you haven't met them in person. I mean, so there's some unknowns there, but you can get to know somebody pretty well regularly in two years phoning and facetiming and and all that stuff regularly so i mean chances are you do know them pretty well at this point so that for me is detail one that's really important here the other detail that's really important is it sounds like you don't have a lot of cost and i don't necessarily mean that financially i mean that just in terms of life to going out and giving this a try i mean you say you're ending school you're saying you get a job anywhere you doesn't sound like there's anything particularly tying you down to your location, although I, I certainly would not underestimate the value of an existing support network where you're at. But it sounds like, A, you know this person reasonably well, right, as well as you possibly can for not having met somebody in person, and B, that it's not going to really hurt you to move. My answer would be, you know, do what you feel is right, but something that might be helpful is... In this time frame, if you have the opportunity to maybe go out where he is and spend a week and, and, and stay at the place and kind of figure out if that's a living situation that's going to be enjoyable for you. We don't really know how we're going to feel about living with somebody until we do. It's not a bad idea to get some idea of what that might look like. You know, you might get out there and stay at his house or home or whatever and be like, oh, holy hell, I would never live here. I would never. He does his ice trays crisscross and I need them taken out two at a time evenly. Yes. Things like that that are very important or, you know, whatever. And realize that 
there is some major living incompatibilities. It might be a good idea just to check it out. That being said, you still don't really know until you give it a shot. I would say when you're making these choices, as far as the move, have a contingency plan. Like if this does not work out, if this goes south, if this is not something that works for you, is there a quick shift that you could do? Could you move quickly out of there and and move somewhere else? Or could you go back to where you came from? Those kind of things. So that way you're not putting yourself in a position where you're moving and then you are stuck, right? Like you, you find out this is not a situation that's serving you or your dominant. And now you're stuck because you don't have any other options. So I would say if this is something you want to do, take a shot at it, but have some sort of contingency plan if it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you've known them for two years, short of having a buddy to check in with. I'm not sure there's a lot more you can do from the like, end of wanting to know if somebody's safe before you move in with them or not, right? I mean, it would have it would probably be ideal to have gotten some chances to play with this person in the past. Like Cassie was saying, if you can get out there and you give this stuff a try, that would be good. If you could potentially talk to some other people that this person has been in a play relationship with and a power exchange relationship with and can vouch for them safety-wise, that's good. One thing I might typically do is tell you to, you know, talk to like the community leaders in your area if you know them and and see what they know about this person and their experience with this person as being a dom and being a safe player. Problem is you're not really familiar with this community, so it's going to be a little harder for you to determine what's a good source of information and what's not. But I think the thing is if you want to give it a try, if you're I mean you really really need to evaluate because here's the thing, regardless of this person is a good dom, bad dom, good player, bad player, right? There is this very real problem of even if you can get a job anywhere, even if you are finishing school, there is a certain cost to you both financially and other resources and emotionally to moving across the country, moving in with somebody for a situation that, as Cassie said, until you live with somebody, you just don't know if it's going to work out. Regardless of the play stuff, regardless of the power exchange stuff, you just don't know from a living standpoint if that's going to work out or if that person's going to be getting on your fucking nerves in a couple of weeks, right? And you're taking yourself from a situation where you may have a certain level of support where you're at right now to somewhere that you're probably not really going to know many people besides this person. You know, your social circles are going to kind of become their social circles. And it's important, I think, A, to make sure that you you still have some kind of a support network in place, even if that's friends you're talking with regularly, if that's getting involved in your new community there and getting to know other people and be friends with other people. I think it's very important for you to have your own support network that does not depend on this other person, A, just because you need that in general. It's a healthy thing to have. And B, because when things are looking unhealthy in our relationships and particularly in our power exchange relationships, a lot of times those people in our support network are the first people to see that before we are. So I'd say try and get something like that set up, you know, before you go, ideally, like if you can get a a close friend uh, who you're going to check in with regularly and kind of talk about what's going on and just get their input on life and how things are going, right? That would be ideal. And then... Really, really just make sure you do, in fact, have an exit plan, right? You get across the country with this person. Do you have the financial resources to get back if something goes wrong? You're saying you can get a job anywhere, and that's great. But once you do have that job, how willing are you going to be to leave that job? And what ability are you going to have to relocate that job back? So you just need to make sure because 
the honest truth is there is, I'd say, a better than even chance that this is not going to wind up working out long term just because living with anybody doesn't wind up working out long term a good chunk of the time that you have the plan and the resources and the ability to get back somewhere else. And you need to make sure that that's all in place. And the last part of what you sort of asked about is you said you don't want to mess things up with your DS while you're making this decision. And this is like any other boundary or any other thing where you're taking care of yourself. If your partner understands you and your partner cares, it's going to be okay for you to sit on this and and have some thoughts and to say, you know, I'm not sure what my choice is right now. And even if your choice ends up being no, it shouldn't mess up your DS relationship because it should be something that is understood that this is a, a major thing for you. This, Although this is, you know, okay for you to locate and it might be easy for you to job, it's still a big thing. And I think if your partner really cares about you and really is giving a lot of thought to this process, which your partner should be as well as you, they're going to have understanding for the fact that this isn't going to be a decision that you're just going to be like, sure, I'm going to pack up and move. Just have that in mind that this is you making up your mind or you taking the time to do it shouldn't be something that's interfering with your DS dynamic. All right. So our next question is from Joshua in Tennessee, 38. He says, my wife and our girlfriend have been together for two years. Financially, it makes sense for us to all live together, but we want to make sure we're doing the right thing. Do most find that poly triads work best if all live together or separately? Also, you live with Amanda. So what are some of the issues that have come up and how do you overcome those issues? I'll start with saying that one of the benefits of poly is indeed that it can work out well financially. That is certainly a factor. And there's there's a lot that can be done around finances to make that situation work for everybody. I, I actually, I want to talk about that in a minute because there's, there's a couple things going on in this question. So first, let's talk about if you find that polytriads work better all living together or all living separately? And I think the answer to that would be... I think it depends on the group of people. And I think it depends on how long of a relationship and, and various other things. So I think it really just comes down to, for some people, it works better to live together. It makes sense. It works. For others, it doesn't. I've worked with clients before that are in a triad relationship and their partner doesn't live with them. She actually lives across the street because she still wanted to have her own house. So I think it really comes down to the dynamic of the three of you. You can't really base it off of someone else's relationship. It comes down to, is this something that's going to work for everybody, not only financially, but also by a emotional standpoint and a support standpoint and the integration of families, you're 38. So there's a, a likelihood that you may have children or that your partner may have children, how that's going to integrate and that sort of thing. I think it comes down to your wife, your girlfriend and you and what you guys think is going to be the best fit for all of you. Yeah. And I, I think the way that you make the decision about whether or not it's time to move in together is the way you make that decision when you're monogamous, right? Like, for us, it tends to be when we're spending a lot of time with the person. Like generally for us, it's when are we spending so much time with this a person that it's getting to be a pain in the ass for people to try and coordinate from separate houses. That's thing one. 
And two is, have we been with this person at least a reasonable period of time? Because you don't want to move in overnight and then run into a whole ton of issues. Yeah, I was going to say when it came to Amanda moving in, it was at a point where Amanda was uh, roomating with somebody. And we were like, you've gone home like three times this month. You're paying for a room in a house that you don't even stay at ever. And not only that, but it's becoming like inconvenient to try to go and get clothes or do things and just doesn't make sense. So I think it's 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 kind of the same, as you said, the same process that you would when you were dating monogamously. Yeah. One thing that I do want to mention, I think it's kind of leads into the next thing about doing the right thing. And I think there's a few things that come here. The first is you always need to make sure anytime you've been with somebody, we just talked about it, that you have an exit plan, right? If you're not moving across the country, it's not as big a deal. But let me put it this way. If you move in with somebody today and then tomorrow you're sharing all your bills, all your cars are jointly owned, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be awfully hard to become self-sufficient again if that doesn't work out, right? Especially if it doesn't work out well to where people uh, aren't cooperating together particularly well. So you always need to make sure that you have an exit plan. And I feel like this is particularly true sometimes for people who are joining an existing poly group, right? It can be a lot of times, and it doesn't matter, first off, it doesn't matter if it's two people or more than two people. I actually, you know, you have the whole thing about the triad, right? I tend not to try and think, and you'll hear us refer to ourselves as a triad sometime, but honestly, most of the time I try not to think or refer to us as a triad. And the reason that is, is because we're not locked into that arrangement. Like there are, I mean, like I said, we're currently dating somebody right now. We have other play partners. And I, I think it's, it's just not a mindset that I find to be incredibly helpful. That's A. But B, whether you're talking about moving in with a triad or a group or or anything along those lines, that group that you're moving in with can always have established. There's so much here to unpack. There's so much here to unpack. They can already have established rules and ways that things are done in the house. We'll address that separately. That's one thing. But what I was actually saying is they can already have things established financially. You know, like maybe they have a house car. Maybe, you know, the house is already owned by the people you're moving in with. All those kinds of things. And it can be really easy to step in and say, wow, financially, this would be really easy for me to give up my car and just use the house car, right? Or, you know, it's going to be really easy for me to move in here and not have to pay rent anymore. But when you're going into a situation where all these things are already set up for other people, it can be harder for you to have an exit plan. So you need to make sure that you have one that you're not hopping into you know, both moving in and, and specific financial arrangements with moving in that you're you're making it difficult for you to leave if you need to leave. Because a lot of times moving in does not work out in the long term. Yeah. And what I would say about integration, one of the things that I've talked to a couple of different poly groups from, like groups, and when I'm saying groups, like either triads or quads, And one of the things that I've picked up that I really took to heart a while back was someone said that when you have an incoming partner and there's already established partners, whether that's two or three or five, whatever, and there's an established household, the person who is coming into that home and is joining your your nesting situation to integrate slowly, like okay, so you're paying rent, that sort of thing, but you keep your own phone bill. You keep your own car. Keep your own bank account. You keep your own banking account. And then over time, maybe start to integrate some of those things. 
And, you know, maybe, maybe, okay, now you're on the phone bill after a year, or maybe, okay, now we're doing this. But do those things slowly so that if in the next four months or three months or two weeks, you find out, well, gee, this is not something that's working for all of us, there isn't all those ties. There is something to be said about doing things at a slower pace as far as integration. And that's in any relationship. That's not necessarily groups, but especially with groups who may already be in a situation where there's lots of entanglements there that if you found yourself in a position or not you necessarily, but your girlfriend found herself in a situation where you and your wife had a lot more security in things than she does. You want to make sure that everybody has some security for where they're going if things don't go right. The other thing is, is that, you know, you talked about the right thing. And I think it's super important to keep in mind that when you're making these arrangements and living arrangements are are many different things, as Rigel just touched on, as far as being how everybody interacts in the home to the different dynamics as far as raising children and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it also comes down to finances. And it's super important to recognize if there is a huge benefit to one or two people and someone else is not benefiting from the situation. And that's kind of a tricky thing, right? Especially when partners have different financial means. It can be very easy and I mean, there's this goes both ways, right? But it can be very easy. Say if you're the partner who's who's making more money, it can be very easy to let your partner, other partner, live there for like a nominal fee. But really, they're not pitching in, and you're covering most of the stuff. And maybe after a while, you start to feel a little resentful about that. So, without diving too deep into this topic, there's two main ways that we've seen poly households tend to handle finances. Is one of two ways. Either uh, there's just, you know, a certain amount of, of rent charged, right? And that goes up with like now you're, you know, we're sharing a phone bill or this and that, right? So somebody just pays like whoever owns the house rent and okay, now I'm pitching it for utilities and this and that. The other way that I actually really, really like uh, that I've seen be very successful, but we haven't just haven't had the resources really to implement in our own household is a percentage-based system say everybody pays 50% of their income into the household and they pay like 10% of their income into an emergency fund and like another 10% into a vacation fund and they keep the rest of their money. Uh, So it it actually scales depending on your income level. That tends to work well for bigger groups. I think it's actually an amazing system and amazing way to do it. I'd actually love to, to do that myself someday. If things are going on long enough and we're still on the doing the right thing, right? Right. If things go on long enough, you know, because you are poly and because we live in a monogamous world, you do have to take steps to protect people that you wouldn't necessarily have to if you were in a monogamous relationship, right? So if you are married to somebody and you die, well, they inherit your stuff. Or if, you know, you guys break up, there's legal protections in place to where you guys are each going to get pieces of something and and people just aren't going to be left out in the cold. In poly situations, that is not the case. If you're in a house for, like, you're you're part of a household for 15 years and you're helping work towards improving that house and that kind of thing, but you're just paying rent, well, you don't get anything, right? So it's very important if you guys are together long enough to consider taking legal actions to protect everybody. We have 
a whole episode, which is uh, episode 26, which is what poly folks you know about the law with Ben Schenker, that talks about like cohabitation agreements and estate agreements and things that you need to consider from a legal end to protect everybody who's involved in a household. Yeah, and the living agreements, as far as cohabitation agreements, are good regardless of if it's long term. So I would check that out because I think it would be a lot of really good information there for you guys as far as sort of establishing some of that stuff just to cover everybody in the case that this doesn't work. I'd say at a very minimum, if you're living somewhere, make sure you have a lease. Okay. And that, that, that protects actually both people involved in that. So at least make sure that you have a lease. But definitely look at cohabitation agreements and things along those lines. What would you say as far as bringing people in to a house where there's a lot of existing agreements and existing routines and things along those lines so that that's a fair situation? I think that this kind of merges with his thing with issues with Amanda, right, that we've ever had. And one of the areas that we had some bump ups, for example, was chores. When Amanda first moved in, we didn't have really a discussion around who was handling laundry or dishes and things like that. And that was actually one of the issues that popped up that would actually kind of cause us to have to have a conversation. And, you know, there was some feelings that were hurt and things like that originally. And I'm bringing up the chore thing because it's one of the the smaller issues. But when you have a lot of things that are sort of in place in a household, I think it's incredibly important for everybody to sit down and have some conversations, some very solid conversations around what expectations they are. And just like with any other agreements, when you're in a new relationship, this is now becoming a new nesting relationship there needs to be a renegotiation of those things. So maybe when it was just you and your wife, your wife did all the the laundry or all the dishes, but now there's three of you. So there's more laundry and dishes. So someone else might need to take a dish night. So sitting down and actually reapproaching those things. And I recommend when I'm working with couples to first sit down and negotiate those things and go over those things and come to some agreements around them. And then after you live with somebody for about a month or two, go and revisit because you may find out that those things that you agreed to don't work. It's not working. Maybe I said, sure, I'll handle everybody's laundry. I can do that. That's cool. Well, I didn't realize that my partner changes clothes four times a day because they go to gym, they have work clothes, they have their pajamas, and they have the clothes around the house. And I didn't recognize how much that was going to be as far as my time. So I recommend all of you sitting down and talking about a couple of areas. And these things are chores, for one, if you guys have children, going over what the expectations are as far as the interactions with children. Is your partner going to be someone who is going to be able to discipline your children? You know, is this something where if your child is home with this partner, do they have the ability to say, I'm going to take your video games if you don't do the dishes? common conversation in our house, Um, things like that. But going over things as far as the kids, how is that being handled? The other aspect is definitely going over the finances, which we've talked about a lot. But those three main areas are the things that I really think you guys need to sit down and come up with some new agreements, regardless of if things are already established with you and your wife, because those dynamics change when you have somebody else moving in with you. So... You live with Amanda, so what are some issues that have come up and how did you overcome those issues? I think we'll just pick a couple things here because we've already gone pretty long on this question. The thing that you just said is one. Something else that we've talked about before is there is definitely 
a big difference in the desire levels among the people in our household. That is something that we have had to kind of navigate as we've gone. And we have the whole podcast episode on bridging the desire gap, which I can link to in the show notes for that. And as well, well, yeah, we, we, we put a lot of things into place in our house. So we've, we've had to navigate that. That is definitely something that you can make work. It really comes around to, as you know, is, is the lower sex drive person willing to let the higher sex drive people handle those needs? Or is that, you know, do they get iffy with that whole thing? I think those were the two main things that we had to overcome. I think there was a little bit of an adjustment with the kiddo as far as after Amanda moved in. And, but that was less the move in and just the duration of the relationship, sort of going from kind of just the cool partner who came over and hanged out to being more of a parent. I, I think there was definitely a little bit of a shift there. That was a little bit of an obstacle. Nothing out of the ordinary, but kind of like the first time that she ever took his video games oh. and he, he was like devastated. He like was like, oh my gosh. Boring. Okay. So boring poly stuff. No, I thought of another couple stuff around sleeping. So a, when Amanda first it was after she moved in anyways, Amanda. So as, as I'm sure some of you are aware who have had this experience, you can fit three people sleeping in a king bed, depending on how you sleep. It's not comfortable. It's really not the recommended amount of space. So we had some issues with sleeping until we made our giant super we bed. made the giant bed. Amanda snores. That is something that we've had to navigate. That's been a whole process. <laughs> um, it's 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 the little things that you have when any partner moves in. I think for the most part, the snoring, though, I was like, oh, my God, the snoring, Um, you know, just daily routines like there's more people using the shower. You know, there's more people have to get ready and get up in the morning. I mean, the conversation I just set, had with Amanda not too long ago was I was like, holy hell, how do we go through so much more toothpaste? Like it's little things like that. I was like, we need a bigger toothpaste budget that I recognize. So hopefully that answers your question. And, uh, you know, you guys sit down, have discussions, evaluate, and good luck to you with the potential moving in situation. Our next question is from Raven, 48, Seattle, Washington. I'm the third in a FMF triad where the wife wants every activity to be the three of us. I love doing things with both my partners, but sometimes I'd like to go to things with just one partner or just the other. I spend 99% of my time with my female partner because her husband is away most of the week. And we go out to dinner, have fun, etc., I'd like the opportunity to have those experiences with my male partner as well. Is this unrealistic? I try and give them time alone when I have obligations for work or my children in hopes that I might have the same opportunity, but neither of them seem to value spending time alone with each other as they've done that for 25 years. My requests for time with my male partner have been turned down as my female partner feels it would be excluding her. I don't feel excluded when they spend time with each other. I'm happy for them. I'm working hard at accepting the limitations of my relationship with her husband. Any suggestions for coping with the situation? Before we answer this question, I really want to inject what a problematic statement it is. I'm working hard at accepting the limitations of my relationships with her husband. Mm -hmm. He doesn't belong to her. A... There should not be limitations. This is this is when you start talking about 
one relationship having power over a separate relationship, right? Even if you're all in a triad, his wife should not be exerting power over the relationship that you and your boyfriend are having. That is problematic to begin with. Your relationship with your boyfriend, regardless of if you're all in a triad, should be a negotiation between you and your boyfriend. Now, granted, there are situations where you're in a triad, you're, you're dating as a group. Things around time, a lot of times, really are conversations that everybody needs to be involved in. But this mindset of accepting limitations of relationships with her husband, you need to really get out of that. This is a relationship between all of you. And that's how you should be negotiating it. Yeah, it's it's really a, a mindset thing that really needs to shift here because if you're looking at it as her husband and my limitations because it's her husband rather than this is our relationship, you are always going to put yourself in a situation where you are giving You're a third up, class citizen. Yeah. You're you're giving up your relationship rights. We all have rights in our relationship. We have rights to work towards getting our needs and wants met. We have the right to have a voice in our relationship. And there's many others as well. But when you start acting as though you as a partner are less than or less deserving than, you will ultimately put yourself in a position where you are not being treated as an equal and, and fair, really. That's a huge, huge marker there that that really that's that's a mind shift change that you need to have and also need to make sure is in your relationship. Yeah, I was going to say that that not only you need to have, but you need to make sure not say you to make sure because you can't control other people's mindset, but that everybody in your relationship needs to be on the same page on. That's definitely that that I think is the first step as far as actually resolving the time you ask, is it unrealistic? And the answer is no. Having dyad time is necessary. Uh, Even when you're dating as a group, everybody having time to, we talked about, it might have been in the last episode about, you know, how you get to be different parts of yourselves with different people, but having time to explore those different parts of yourselves with each other, having time to explore your your mutual interests and to build a relationship one-on-one is very important, even in group dynamics. Yeah, it's, it's very, very important. Now, you mentioned that there's limited time. So I can relate to not necessarily wanting to give up large amounts of that little bit of time that's available, right? You're, you're talking about there's there's this small amount of time to divide. The thing is, is that I can relate to that. I can relate to being like, well, I don't get to see my partner either. I was in a position with you with that for years. Rigel had a very busy work schedule. That being said, finding that time where everybody can foster their individual relationships within the triad relationship is super important. Dyad time. Dyad time, yes. It's super important to do that. And the thing is, is that if you're willing to do it, you guys can find the time. I guarantee that she is not unbusy every day of the year, right? Like there, there is times that you guys could go and do things. And maybe it's something where it's while she's busy doing something with her friends or something else. It doesn't have to necessarily be this idea of trying to take time that could be group time away. But if there absolutely is none of those opportunities, you still need to find a little time to do that. All of you. That means her and him. That means you and her, as well as 
him and you. And you are getting that with her because you're saying that you have all this time with her. But it's also important for all the different levels of the relationship. An ideal way to handle this, right? And the way that we try and handle it in our relationships and, and we try and, and tell our clients to handle it is if you're in group poly, most of the time you can find dyad time during natural downturns in time. And that's usually the best way to do it, right? Somebody's got to go to work. Somebody's got to handle the kids. Somebody has another activity that they do and there is time where they're gone and you can fit dyad time in there. And that, you know, that's the best situation because nobody's getting left out of anything that they could do or would do anyways, right? So that's the ideal situation. So you can look for those opportunities in your guys' relationship and try and find that. But if that's not available, then you guys do need to make dyad time to spend together. And that's not saying it has to be a large amount of his free time. It's not saying that that has to be 50% of his free time that he has. It's just saying that you're making sure that you're having those moments and that availability to do that occasionally to feed your relationship. And another aspect that is ideal is if there's something that you and him like to do or how you like to spend time where the wife is not... Vegan in- apple pies. Yeah, is not interested then being able to bond and do those things so no one feels like they're missing out. Like, obviously, you guys don't want to spend time doing something that your female partner would really love to do because then, of course, she's going to feel like, oh, well, that's something I would have loved to do too. You know, I would have loved to go and do that thing that you guys did. So finding things where one partner isn't really in the mood to do it or doesn't really like to do it. And most of the time in triads, as someone who's been in one and has worked with lots of people, all of us have different interests and usually there's a couple of things that we like and one of our partners like and our other partners like, hell no, as in vegan apple pie. So <laughs> with that in mind, I almost feel like we need to tell that story. Now. Yeah, I do. That's why I, I was like, all right, vegan so apple pie. So the vegan apple pie story is uh, briefly, we were at a munch. We had two close friends of ours. Our one friend, he was talking about how he'd gone out. And he'd spent the weekend or a day, I don't remember the specific length of time, I think it was a day, he'd spent a day with his girlfriend making vegan apple pies. And his wife, who was there, said, and this is what I don't understand about Polly, everybody thinks that people would get jealous. She's like, why the fuck would I get jealous? I have no idea what I was doing, but it damn sure was more exciting than making vegan apple pies. So that's the vegan apple pie story. So you can find things that you guys want to do that probably your, your partner is not incredibly interested in. Our next question is from Mike, 33, from California. I have been wrongfully accused of a consent violation. What do I do? With no further details, a very simple answer. Uh, contact the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. File an incident report with them. We will put the link in the show notes. And then after you've done that, Go listen to our podcast episode that is number 35 on consent with Susan Wright from the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. And we actually talk about a lot of this stuff in there and give some specific advice on what you can do if you are in the situation. But it boils down to step A is contact the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom immediately and talk to them about it. That was all I was going to say. Our next question is from uh, actually we have two questions from Angel 41 from Portland, Oregon. My wife and I were married before we decided to go poly. She's since picked up a boyfriend. I have yet to do anything. I'm struggling, feeling guilty about going against the vow I made to her when we got married. I'm trying to get past that. 
what can I do? So I think part of this is really diving into what it is that is making you feel guilty about the vows that you've made. Like, why is it that you feel you're going against your vows? What was it specifically in your vows that made you feel guilty? And the reason why I ask people to do this is because a lot of times people bring things up like, you know, I'll be committed to you and I'll be loyal to you. And take a look at that and really think of whether or not this is something where you actually are going against your vow. And if it comes down to like a religious standpoint or something like that, start to evaluate as far as whether or not this is something that you really should be carrying or not. So I will say, I do think one thing that you need to do here to begin with is to really evaluate if you're actually feeling guilty about going against your vow. Like, is this actually really that you're feeling guilty about a vow that you made however long ago when you got married? Like, is that really the problem? Because I'm saying that because I think it's more likely to be something else. Maybe I'm wrong, especially if it is a religious thing. But I, I would start with very seriously evaluating, is that actually why you're feeling guilty or is it something else? Because I, I think that resolving this is going to start with identifying the problem. And I'd be really curious as to whether that is really the problem or whether there's something else there. And that kind of leans into the second thing I was going to say about that. So when I see guilt pop up for folks, right, there tends to be one of two things going on. Either it is a belief that we are going against something, right? It's guilt because we have a belief that we are doing something that we promised and we're not fulfilling a promise. That's where guilt comes in. We, are, we feel guilty when we are not providing a promise. The other aspect of guilt, it's not really guilt. We kind of use guilt as the emotion that we go to for it, but really what it is is fear. It's fear that if I do this, I'm going to cause problems in my relationship. If I do this, then my wife's going to be upset or there's going to be jealousy. And we harbor it as this guilty feeling that I want to have this thing and there's this possibility. But really what it is, is there is the fear of a possibility happening later is really the emotion that's under there. So when you say you're curious if there's something else going on, I personally think that a lot of times that underneath thing is a fear. And we're using the word guilt and we're using the the, the feeling of guilt to sort of demonstrate our fears, our fears of what us practicing who we are or what we want causing issues later. I think that if you are afraid that something is going to damage your relationship, that can make you feel guilty. And actually, you know, I think we talked at fairly great lengths about some of the myths that cause people to feel guilty. We talked about that actually in the first part of this Q&A episode, the first question. We, We go into great detail about this. So, If you evaluate this and you decide, you know, this really isn't about the vow, because if it wasn't, if there isn't some kind of religious backing to this, I would be kind of surprised to find out that that's what it is, or at least that that's all that it is, right? If you, you know, you you put some thought into this and you decide, you know, really, it's probably this other thing that I'm feeling guilty about or I'm feeling fearful about, go back, listen to that last Q&A if you haven't already, like I said, the part one of this. And listen to the first question and listen to some of those things that we talk about myths that make people feel guilty and feel afraid in these kinds of relationships. 
and see if any of those click for you. All right. So I think we're on to the part two of his question, which is when my wife and I start to talk about dating, she seemed super positive and encouraged me. But when I actually start to put effort into it, I get the feeling that she doesn't like it as much as she says. How do I have that conversation? And I'm going to ask you kick this off, but I'm going to start with, he says, when my wife and I start to talk about me dating, because he already made it clear in the first question that she is dating. So, yeah. So as far as not being as positive, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit with this and say that a lot of times when folks are in theory talking open relationships, it is a lot easier to be positive and be spunky and excited And then once it starts unfolding into a reality, that's where a lot of fears come in and a lot of anxieties or, oh gosh, I'm, you know, what about this? What about that? So this could very well come from a place of your wife have been being excited. She may have been really happy and and, and having a, a positive, encouraging feeling to it. And at this point, now that it's something that you're actually looking to do and are practicing it versus just being in theory, you're actually practicing. Maybe that's bringing up some fears and concerns for her. That could be the case. And this is where you want to go back to sort of, you know, you guys talking about your relationship and giving some of that support as far as, you know, making her feel secure. On the other hand, this could be a situation where your wife, because you've gone so long without dating folks, was not really expecting this to be something that was going to happen. That, you know, she's had partners and you haven't. And now she's not really comfortable with the idea of the change. And that might be why these feelings are coming up is because it was sort of this theory And you never did anything. And now it's something that she's having to actually deal with where she didn't really expect for it to be something that she was going to have to. So what I would say here is, uh, so you say, I get the feeling that she doesn't like this as much as she says. So I think you really need to evaluate why you think that. Like, what is the evidence that supports that theory, right? So Anytime you have an idea like this that's negative, part of the process is you really want to sit down and look and examine and say, you know, okay, I'm telling myself this story. The story I'm telling myself is that she is not as enthused about this as she made it out to be. What is the evidence to support that? And you need to really see what's there. I have found it more and more as I've gone along in my life and my relationships to be somewhat counterproductive to try and mind read people at odds with what they're actually telling me, right? So, because it's very easy to pick up on stuff that isn't actually there and to take actions based off that instead of what our partners are actually telling us. And to me, that's a very dangerous game. A, because it's very easy to be wrong. And B, because it is their responsibility as an adult to actually be honest with you when they're communicating. And to me, trying to mind read somebody, especially when it's going contrary to what they say, is a dangerous thing to do. So with that in mind, how do you think that he should go about having this conversation? I think the way to go about having this conversation is from a place of care. Say, you know, honey, dear, whatever her name, 
I, I've noticed that when we've had these conversations, it appears to me that, you know, you may not be happy with about something or you seem like something is upsetting you or you seem fill in emotion here that you're noticing. Obviously, don't fill in a really nasty emotion like I noticed that you act like a bitch. Like, don't do that. But I noticed that you seem concerned or you seem down or you seem unhappy. And I really want to know what's going on with you. I really want to know, you know, what's going on with you. So that way, you know, we can talk about it and come just come from a place like that. Say, you know, I noticed that when I talk about getting on Tinder or me doing X, Y, and Z as far as dating, that it it seems like you you seem like there's something wrong. Could you could you tell me what's going on? Because I I would really like to know. And you may find that it is something like I'm scared. You know, I'm scared you might find somebody that's better than me, or you might find that it's you know I I don't actually really like to hear about you being on Tinder. Like I I I have no problem with it, but I don't want to hear about it. It could be many many different things that you are now assigning this one fact to this, this one possibility of maybe story. Yeah. One story that is, she's not actually okay with it when it could be many different things. It could be, she's feeling inadequate or she, as I said, just doesn't want to hear about what you're doing. Or nothing's actually going on. Yeah. I would say have that conversation. The only thing I would add to that is if she tells you no, I'm fine. Don't get into an argument that she's not really fine. Okay. Like you, you don't, don't take action based on the thought that she's not fine. Because as I said, at the end of the day, a we're horrible mind readers. That's thing. A B you really, the only way to have a healthy productive relationship is to be able to trust what your partner saying and to take action based off that. So at the end of the day, if she tells you, no, I'm fine then you need to proceed as if that is the case. And something I suggest to couples is if you do have the partner who says, I'm fine, and you still have sort of that doubt that that may not be true, something that's very helpful is to continue going about your action as though it is truthful, but end that conversation on a positive open note of, look, I, I'm, I'm going to take what you're saying at face value if anything changes or anything comes up for you, know that you can always come to me and talk to me about this. Leave it as an open conversation and an inviting one for them to come back and talk to you later. Because sometimes maybe there is something and they're just saying, you know, I'm fine, but you're leaving it in a way that is saying, you know, I, I, I really value you as a partner and I love you. If, if anything ever comes up, I want you to know you can come and talk to me, that kind of thing. All right. So our last question was from an anonymous person who didn't want to say where they were from or how old they were. So we're just going to go with the question. <laughs> so um, the question is, I can't ever tell if my wife is in the mood. You happen to be in luck. We just put out a blog post. Some of you have probably been waiting for for a while, uh, but we finally got it done. We just put out a blog post on the desire map, which is the tool that we use in our own house to tell when people are in the mood and what they're in the mood for. I'm not going to get into that whole thing because like I said, we literally just wrote a very long, detailed step-by-step -step blog post 
on how to build your own desirement. But like I said, at the end of the day, it's a tool that you guys can use to communicate what you're in the mood for and how much you're in the mood for those particular things without constantly having to have these conversations and pressure or feel like you're pressuring each other for sex, right? Or, you know, that you're you're pressuring your partner or you're being pressured. This is actually an amazing tool. We had talked about this in our episode on the desire gap and dealing with the desire gap. So we had we had talked about it in that episode, which I'll link to in the show notes as well in case you find that helpful. But like I said, it's an amazing tool. It's what we use to deal with our situation in our house where A, just Cass and I find it an incredibly useful tool for each other, but also, you know, we have a lower sex drive partner in the house and it's very helpful to communicate. Go take a look at that post. I'll link to it in the show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash zero three seven. And I think you will find it incredibly helpful. All right, guys. So thank you so much for all your amazing questions. We love getting them in. We got a whole bunch. That's why it was two episodes. And I know that with the last question, we brought up the desire map blog post that is super, super long and very detailed. And I just want to say you guys, regardless of if you're having huge differences in your sex drives, things like that, it is a great tool for everybody. If you have different partners or you and your partner have even just small differences, it is incredibly helpful for understanding when your partner is in the mood or when your partner is interested in a certain activity. It is one of the best tools that we've ever created and we're really happy to share it with you guys. So check it out in the show notes and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1.